you don't mind, let's turn together to Colossians chapter 3. We are continuing to work through Paul's letter to the church in Colossae. We find ourselves here in chapter 3 in a section where Paul is answering the natural question for those of us who have been rescued by the grace of God, for the glory of God, how then shall we live? Colossians chapters 3 through 4 are a section that answer the, the so what question that naturally comes as a result of beholding God and being made participants of His covenant love. So we're right in the heart of this section of this so what response to what God has done for us in Christ. We have taken our time through the first couple of chapters to look at all of our privileges. And chapters 1 through 2 are replete, chocked full of privileges that are ours, granted to us by God and Christ. We find ourselves now in chapter 3, having come out of a section where Paul has told the church to put off certain things, vices, if you will. We find ourselves now in a section where we realize that there are not just vices to be put off, but virtues to be put on. We read together earlier from Deuteronomy chapter 7, where Moses told the people that they were a people holy to the Lord, a chosen and holy people. We also read a bit earlier from Leviticus chapter 19. This same holy chosen people was to respond to God in practical acts of obedience. In fact, he tells them things like, don't glean your fields all the way up to the edge. Why would he tell Israel that? After all, the fields belong to those individual landowners, those farmers. Well, there were poor people in the land who did not have enough resources or family heritage to have their own fields. And God, through Moses' mouth and Moses' pen, instructed the people that there were very practical things that they were to do to care for those around them. And upon what basis? What was the basis of such commands? We read this just a bit ago together in Leviticus 19. What does God consistently say after He gives them the command to love? He says, I am the Lord. In other words, all the ethical commands, all the commands to practically love are rooted in who God Himself is. In fact, maybe you've never thought about this, but this is a summary of the Ten Commandments themselves. The first four are, are Godward, vertical, if you will. But the latter portion, six of them, are given over to the way that we love one another horizontally. It's interesting. The summary of the law, according to Jesus, according to Paul himself and his letter to the Roman church, was that we are to love God and love people. Love is the fulfilling of the law. 
we understand that when we come into a relationship with anyone, that we have responsibilities. A little over 21 years ago, I stood at an altar and watched my bride come down the aisle, and I made commitments to her. I would love her and honor her, cherish her in sickness and in health, and I would forsake all others. We don't remember a whole lot about our marriage counseling. My dad was our pastor, and he did our marriage counseling. He was too embarrassed to talk about certain topics, I guess because I was his son. And so he avoided those, which probably made things a little more comfortable, though not very helpful, I will say that. But the only thing we remember about our marriage counseling is that I was supposed to take out the garbage and wash the cars. That's all I remember. Now, upon hearing that as a 22-year-old young man, I thought, well, this this is going to be pretty easy, right? But I found pretty quickly as life went on that I was exposed over and over again in my my lovelessness, my lack of love. And the past 21-plus years of my marriage have been anything. It has been a constant reminder of how how selfish I am, how, how much I have to grow, and how much my heart has to change. When I was brought into this covenant relationship with my wife, I was brought into a relationship of, of loving back, of giving back. This is true in the way that God loves His people. Because of who He is, because He is the Lord, and because He Himself is love, it is natural that He calls us to respond with love as well. This is rooted in the law. It's rooted, frankly, in human conscience, and it's rooted especially in the person of Christ and the gospel which has saved us. Why the ethical commands that we will read together in just a moment here? Why these virtue, these putting on of of virtuous living? Why does Paul command that here in Colossians 3? Well, as we've already said, it's a response to who God is. It's, It's a keeping of covenant with another party. But likely here in Colossae, because they were, they were being tempted with a philosophy that, that Jesus was necessary but not sufficient for salvation, which is heresy, that the people who were espousing or teaching this heresy not only had bad theology, but had bad practice. Their orthodoxy was wrong toward God. And their orthopraxy, the way that they lived toward each other, was wrong as well. And that's natural. If we get the gospel wrong vertically, the way that God loves us in Christ, rescuing us not by our merits, but because He is full of grace, if we get that wrong, then we will naturally get horizontal living wrong. One follows the other. So it is likely here in Colossae that not only were they hearing bad doctrine, heretical teaching, they likewise were seeing these heretics espousing bad living. Because if you don't relate to God as the one true God who has stooped to us by merciful love, you will begin to become so self-focused that you become the object of worship, you become the sun around which the planets orbit, and therefore you fail to love like you should. It is only when God 
is orbited around that we love like we should. And so, today, we are going to talk about the virtues of gospel restoration. Those of us who have been joined to Christ by faith have been granted the Holy Spirit who now lives inside of us and produces virtue, and we are called responsibly to live like this. So let's read together Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 through 13. Hear God's Word. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. May God bless to us the reading of His Word. Next week, Pastor Rick will teach us in verse 14 that we are to put on love. And in a lot of ways, verses 12 through 13 are the specifics of what love looks like. So we will explore those together today. So here's a simple outline for you today. Because of the amazing grace that God has shown us, we must put on, and the first thing we will find is mercy. Notice in verse 12 that we are called God's chosen ones. It would have been enough for Paul merely to have talked about all the privileges that we have in the first couple of chapters and then move on to exhortation, commands. That would have been fine. But verse 12 reminds us once again just how privileged we are, just how loved we are. You know what it's like whenever your children are little, you can shower them with with words of affection, you can hug them, you can kiss them, and, and they love it, right? Now, I only have boys, I don't have any girls, but by the time boys hit like four years old, five years old, they start to get a little uncomfortable with that, right? By the time they turn 12, 15, they're really uncomfortable with that. Sometimes I will be out very early in the morning to have a discipleship meeting with someone, and I'll drive back, and my 12-year-old will be standing at the bus stop getting ready to get on the bus. Not too long ago, I drove up next to him as he was standing next to his friends and rolled down my window and reminded him how much I loved him. This did not make him comfortable. Now, inside, I think he kind of liked it. But it gets a little uncomfortable when you're reminded by your sappy parents, when you're supposed to be cool, that you truly are loved. As adults, we have some sense of this, I think. We struggle to believe God loves us. Because deep down in our quiet moments, we know just how broken and messed up we still are. But it's a wonderful and beautiful and necessary reminder here at the beginning of verse 12 that Paul doesn't just jump to the virtues. He reminds them once again, like a holy kiss from heaven, that we are chosen, holy, and beloved. Why were we chosen? As I said to you earlier in our welcome to worship, I don't know. There's nothing good in us that commended us to God. 
We never would have chosen Him. He chose us because He loved us. And this doctrine of God's election is never meant to be a doctrine that we wrangle over and debate over. Frankly, through the centuries, it is tragically sad how often this doctrine has been so divisive. But over and over again, for the most part, when this doctrine of God's election of His people is spoken of, it is meant to encourage and ground and secure and assure His people. So before he goes on to ethical commands, he reminds them once again that they were chosen. And not only this, he has made them holy. They who formerly were not holy, they who formerly were his enemies, he has made holy and is making them more holy. And they are beloved. The way God looks at his son is the way that he looks at us. Do you know that to be true? If we are in Christ, the Father looks at us as beloved children that He will never, ever cast off. Do you believe that? Now, intellectually we do, right? We would pass the love quiz. But do you believe it? In your worst moments, when you've been harsh, when all these virtues are completely absent from your experience. Do you believe it? I find it striking that before Paul moves on to the putting on of these virtues, which frankly are hard, that he reminds them once again of their privileges. And so I say to all of us today, because of the amazing grace that God has shown us, we must now put on, first of all, mercy. You'll find here in verse 12 in the ESV, if you have that in front of you today, the term compassionate hearts. Paul is speaking here of, of the guts, the inside part of us that feels compassion. In other words, mercy. Paul uses these words in Romans 12. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Because of God's compassionate heart toward us, we are to have compassionate hearts toward others. What's the opposite of this? Well, you might say it's hatred or antipathy. But for the most part, we don't hate people. What's a more accurate opposite contrast how about just indifference or disinterest that's how it shows up for most of us jesus matthew says in chapter 9 of his gospel when he saw the crowds he had compassion for them same word because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd Jesus had a compassionate heart toward lost, wayward people. Generally speaking, we will not be those who have hatred or antipathy toward other people. Though we are often indifferent, we are often disinterested. One of the most beautiful examples of this in all the Scriptures is in Ezekiel chapter 16, where God speaks of a metaphor that illustrates his relationship to Israel. He 
is walking along the road, this royal king, and finds an abandoned baby left out to the elements to die. But he picks that baby up and he cleans it off. And because he's a royal king, he makes this baby a princess and shows her great privilege. Eventually, she grows into a queen, and though she turns away from him with spiritual adultery, he renews her to himself. If you would like this week to meditate upon a passage about God's fathomless grace, spend some time in Ezekiel chapter 16. Who emulates this in our church family? I was thinking about this as I was working through these virtues this week. I'd like to mention some people along the way. I will say at the outset that because of the sheer number of people in our church, I will not mention everybody. So you are just going to have to rejoice when other people receive affirmation, okay? If I mention your name, please don't be embarrassed. Know that it comes from a heart of love. First people that came to mind as I was thinking about this virtue of a compassionate heart or mercy are Andy and Kim Scott. We've had a dinner group together for a while, and they've become dear friends of ours. They live in our neighborhood. We spent some time together Friday night, three or four hours. By the way, if you're getting ready to start your dinner group, you don't have to spend that long, but hopefully your relationships grow to the point that you will do that. So we're spending three or four hours together around our kitchen table. We never leave. We eat and clean it up, and we just sit around the table. And a lot of our discussion revolved around um, their foster son. And because this is recorded, I probably shouldn't say his name. But they've had him for about 18 months now. And they've been through lots of ups and downs. If you get involved in the foster care system, that's the way it's going to be. But I have watched these two people who have two healthy, beautiful, biological children who don't need anything else use their resources of time and love, being willing to go through great pain to pour their love out on people, and in particular this little boy most recently that we have grown to love as a church family, who didn't deserve it, who didn't know him. They never would have crossed paths, but they have placed their love, their compassionate hearts on this little boy. What an example for us as a church family. It'd be easy for us to move through life indifferent and disinterested, but people like Kim and Andy teach us that because of the gospel, that God has loved us and made us holy and beloved, that we should love like that in return. We're so thankful for examples among us. So not only must we put on mercy, Paul says next that we must put on kindness. This is a great translation of the Greek word. It could also be translated goodness, generosity. What's the opposite of goodness and generosity? Well, I think it's selfishness. It's just looking out for ourselves. We don't have to be taught that, right? We are born into that. How does kindness reflect God. Jesus had a compassionate heart, as we already saw. We also find that God is kind, not just compassionate. In Romans chapter 2, Paul says to the church, or do you presume on the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience, and knowing that God's kindness, twice in the same verse, is meant to lead you to repentance? So whenever we demonstrate compassionate hearts and kindness, we are, we are demonstrating, mirroring, reflecting the very character of God. 
I've experienced this. When I was a child, I was a horrible 12 through 15-year-old. You would not have liked me at all. The, the end of that awful path for me probably came when I was about 16, early 16 years old. I stole from a store, and my parents were there when I stole, which was not a good move if you're going to steal, which, of course, I am not advocating. So I stole something, got caught by store security, was taken to store security office, and um, yeah, it's not a fun place to be if you've ever seen those doors at the front of big box retail stores. And what made it worse is uh, they had to ask me, what are your parents' names? And I had to tell them, and they, they called for my parents over the loudspeaker. Not because I was lost, like, you know, like a little kid, but because I had stolen. Now, they didn't say that over the loudspeaker, but my parents, of course, shocked, were brought and ushered into this little office and informed that I had stolen something. They were not happy, as you can imagine. The first 48 hours or so were pretty rough. But I remember as they came around, I had to go see some kind of magistrate of some kind. It wasn't like a normal judge in downtown Cincinnati. And after we finished, um, he had read me the riot act, and we came out on the sidewalks of downtown Cincinnati. And I remember my dad stopped me. He was the only one with me. And he pulled out his wallet, and he gave me a $10 bill. My dad always worked with, like, Aesop's fables and object lessons. And he handed me this $10 bill, and he said, I want you to know that if you ever need anything, all you have to do is ask. He said, I want you to put this in your wallet, and I never want you to spend it. I just want you to remember that you have parents who love you and care for you. Now, you may think that's not a big deal. Ten bucks won't buy you that much, right? Like, barely buy you a value meal at McDonald's or whatever. But it was a symbol. It was a symbol of a person who could easily have judged me, who could easily have taken away all my privilege for a long, long time. But instead, he showed me grace. My father showed me kindness when I was incredibly embarrassed. And that led, if you want to know a little bit more about my biography, that led to great repentance, probably even my new birth, at least perhaps, which then led me down a much different path for the rest of my life. It's amazing how acts of kindness can change people's path. Who emulates this among us? Gentleness, kindness. June Miller does this for me. Every time I see you, June, you smile at me and you speak words of kindness. You may not think that matters much. We've never had a deep theological conversation. But I always know that you will smile and show me kindness. That should never be undersold, right? You want to practice something kind of uncomfortable but very interesting? Go to the mall sometime soon and just smile at people. People aren't used to it. They don't know what to do. Now, they might think you're a lunatic, but it's amazing how disarming it is just to make eye contact with people and smile. And about 85% of the time, they will smile back. They just can't help it. It draws it out of them. What's next? Humility. Paul calls the church to humility. A great translation of the original word. It can also be translated modesty. What's the opposite of modesty, of humility? Well, it's arrogance. It's something that must be driven out of every single one of us. How does this reflect God? Well, 
Famously, in Philippians chapter 2, Paul says about Jesus, "...have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though He was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied Himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, He humbled Himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross." The Son of Man humbled Himself for us. C.S. Lewis says in his famous work, Mere Christianity, to even get near humility, even for a moment, is like a drink of cold water to a man in a desert. Do not imagine that if you met a really humble man, he will be what most people call humble nowadays. He will not be a sort of greasy, smarmy person who is always telling you that, of course, he is nobody. Probably, All you will think about him is that he seemed a cheerful, intelligent chap. He was English, he could say chap. Who took a real interest in what you said to him. If you do dislike him, it will be because you feel a little envious of anyone who seems to enjoy life so easily. He will not be thinking about humility. He will not be thinking about himself at all. Commenting on this very passage Tim Keller says that what will stand out if you were to meet a truly humble person is that they will always be interested supremely in us. Super interesting, isn't it? Who emulates this among us? I think Pastor Rick does. It's interesting, I hang out with a lot of pastors, and Rick and I have a lot of pastor friends here in the city. And what's interesting as I hang out with them and hear them talk about him is that's what they constantly comment on, is that Rick is constantly characterized by humility. That's 60-plus years of nurturing and fostering a heart and a character that we all benefit from. Humility is beautiful. Humility is disarming. Humility is surprising And humility is scarce. But if the Lord Jesus Himself was humble, should we not be? That is a community that will lead to flourishing because it is so different from what is around us. Next, Paul says that we are to put on gentleness. The word here in Colossians chapter 3 verse 12 is meekness. It's the idea of restraining your strength. What's the opposite? To be a condemning person. It's easy to be condemning, right? How does this reflect this life of meekness and and gentleness? How does this reflect God? Well, remember when Jesus was on the beach with Peter after His resurrection? This is like Jesus' vacation after His work of atonement. Makes them breakfast. Remember what He talked about with Peter, his discussion with Peter. He asks him three times if Peter loves him. It wasn't because he was angry with him. It was because he wanted to restore him. And at the end of that discussion, he makes it very clear to Peter that Peter is going to lead this band of disciples, the most unlikely of leaders, not because of natural gifting, but because of personal failure. But Jesus restored him with gentleness and without condemnation. 
We are used to condemnation, and we fear it constantly. Who emulates this among us? My mother-in-law does. I've known my mother-in-law for 25 years now. I'm not as young as I used to be, not as old as some of you, but for 25 years I've known this woman. And in 25 years, I have never heard my mother-in-law say one bad thing about one person. That's amazing. I remember when Whitney and I started dating. Um, My family were professional eviscerators. We could just gut people with words of condemnation because we thought we were better than people. Remember not long after we started dating, and she would come to our family roasts, and I mean that in a couple of different ways, (laughs) that she would say to me, I can't believe the way you talk about people. And I didn't know what she was talking about. I didn't even recognize it. And then I started hanging out with her family, and I saw. It's amazing. God calls us to this kind of, of life that reflects and emulates the very life of Jesus, not keeping a record of wrongs, but thinking the best of others. You know what the opposite of condemnation is, or maybe another way to say it is the opposite of gossip. We talked about this last week. It's promotion. It's not just saying nothing. It's promotion. So if you hear somebody gossiping about somebody in the church family, which I'm sure never happens, right. The opposite of gossip is promotion. Speak well of someone. Pick something out. Speak it. It's amazing how disarming this is. The next virtue that Paul speaks of is patience. Again, a great translation of the original language. What's the opposite of patience? Well, I guess it's irritability. I'm a father of four boys, as I've already said to you today. In my worst moments, when I'm tired, focused on other things, I can be so incredibly irritable when my agenda is messed up. Or when I do think I have a few moments to rest after a long, hard week, and that gets changed. For those of you who have young children, I heard something great this past week in a podcast by a pastor out in Portland. He was talking about the early monastics and how within their orders they had bells that would call them to prayer. Whatever they were doing, whether planting vegetables or brewing beer, because monks did things like that, they would set aside everything they were doing, they would go to the chapel and they would pray. But in a sense, being a parent of young children is sort of monastic. When your children cry, or when they need you, or when they are complaining, or when they are hurting, or when their homework is hard, or when they are hungry, or on and on you go, you can view it as a monastic bell, calling you to patient living with them, the opposite of irritability. God was like this. If the Old Testament, the 39 books of the Old Testament, are a history of anything, a story of anything. It's a story of how God is so constantly patient with His people. They turned away again and again and again. Though He had found her and cleaned her and made her a royal princess, she turned away over and over again to lovers that could not satisfy. And yet He kept His promise, particularly in giving us Jesus, the seed of the woman to crush the head of the serpent, the promise that He made millennia before. 
Barnabas was like this. Think of Paul. Paul was a hard-charging guy. But if you read Paul's letters well, Paul often gets a bad rap as only being a hard-charging guy, a disciplined, devoted, persevering kind of guy. Paul is also a man of great compassion and kindness, quick to affirm. In fact, as we will come to the end of this letter, we will find him affirming person after person, not embarrassed to do so. Where did he learn that? I think he learned that from Barnabas, his first discipler, this man of great compassion. Who does this for us in our midst? I see Kevin and Jenna Nordeen doing this consistently. God has called Kevin and Jenna to some difficult things in their family. And yet consistently, over and over again, I see them demonstrating patience toward their own children, to our children that they teach in our classes here. I love Jenna's looking down. She won't look up. I love Jenna and Kevin for this because it shows us like a, like a canvas what this virtue looks like. It looks a lot like Jesus. The next, we are called to be long-suffering. You see this in verse 13. We are to bear with one another, Paul says. This could also be translated, we are to endure, we are to tolerate. What's the opposite of this? Well, I think it's giving up on someone. How does this reflect the grace of God? Well, I think we see it right now in what Jesus is up to. What's Jesus up to right now? What's he doing? What's his job right now? Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father. But he's not just lounging, drinking heavenly wine or something of the sort. Jesus, according to Paul in passages like Romans 8 or in the book of Hebrews, is praying for us. Why? Because we still lack mercy. Kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Jesus is long-suffering right now, in heaven, praying for us. This is what the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant was all about. See if you can follow me here. This is a little complex, but it's really beautiful. The word that is translated propitiation in the New Testament, you know this word, like Romans 3, 1 John. The Greek word that is translated into English, propitiation, is the Greek word hilasterion. Okay? In the Old Testament translation into Greek, which we call the Septuagint, the Old Testament was translated into Greek. In fact, probably most of the early church read the Greek translation of the Old Testament. In the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant the Greek word behind that is hilasterion. In other words, Jesus who propitiated God's wrath is the mercy seat. And even right now, over and over and over again, is pleading on our behalf that God will continue to forgive us and bear with us. Isn't that beautiful? Who does that for us? Who teaches us that in our church? Jan Hoover teaches us that. Jan has been called in this season of life to a difficult station. Jan, I had already chosen to speak about you this morning, but before the service began, she mentioned to me who she had been to visit this week. 
You know Jan's story. She cares for her husband, Dale, so faithfully and well, and it costs her deeply. And yet this week, she not only cared for her husband, who needs her nearly every moment, but she went and visited a couple of our shut-ins this week. What kind of heart is that? It's the heart of Jesus. Jan shows us that even though every day when she wakes up, she knows it's going to be hard, she bears with, and she suffers long. That is beautiful love. It is the love of Jesus. Two more things and we'll be finished. Because of the amazing grace that God has shown us, we must put on faithfulness. Now follow me here. Notice in verse 13 that Paul says, if one has a complaint against another, I almost wish he had written, and I know this is, I'm not being blasphemous here, I love the Bible, but it's almost as if he could have said, when one has a complaint, right? Because that is inevitable. When you live in proximity toward other sinners, you will have a complaint. But we are called to be faithful. Bearing with, but even more, hanging together, knowing full well that we are going to sin against one another. How does this reflect God? Well, the psalmist says in Psalm 130, If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. Paul has said prior to this in Colossians 2.14 that in Christ our record of debt was nailed to the cross. Our record of wrongs, legitimate, not misguided, not misinterpreted, a real record of our wrongs, all of them have been nailed to the cross of Christ and they will not be held against us. Who emulates this among us? Rich Hartzell does. I've had the privilege now of serving with Rich as an elder for over a year. Rich and Teresa are teaching our kids back in the back right now. They're teaching our youngest class, three years old through five years old. So pray for them right now. I have watched Rich in elder discussions give up his rights. I have watched Rich forgive. I have had lunch with Rich and heard him talk about his own sin and how good Jesus is. And because of this, Rich is postured toward his family and toward our church family with great faithfulness, not surprised by sin, but willing to dispense it. And this leads us to the last virtue a posture of forgiveness. So we are faithful to hang with one another, knowing full well we will offend one another, but also postured toward forgiveness. What's the opposite of this? It's holding a grudge, keeping a record of wrongs. Do you do that? Do you seek after people's record of debts nailed to Jesus' cross, trying to rip it down so that you can read it and hold it against them? Think of that image. If Jesus took our record of debts, a, a true record of debts, then nailed it to his cross, why do we seek to rip it down from the cross and hold it against people waving it over their heads? How did Jesus approach the forgiveness of his people? Was he resistant? No. Jesus dispensed grace with great joy. One of the most compelling verses in all the Bible is Hebrews 12, 2, where the writer says, Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. There was joy in coming down 
and dying for us, enduring all this pain, knowing what it would bring us. Reconciliation and family privilege. How do we illustrate this? Every once in a while, for, Ill- for birthdays or for anniversaries, Valentine's Day, we'll go to nicer restaurants. You can always know you're at a nicer restaurant if there's actually linen tablecloths, right? One of my favorite things, once I finally had a little bit of money, is that I was able to afford restaurants with crumb scrapers. Do you know what this is? I remember the first time I went to a really nice restaurant, and there was a guy stationed over in the corner, and he was holding a water pitcher and a little silver thing in the shape of like a V. And whenever we finished our bread service, he came over with his little V-shaped metal thing and scraped all the bread crumbs into his hand and then walked away and didn't say a word. And I thought, this is amazing. <laughs> I have four boys. I've already said that a couple of times. I need a, a crumb scraper constantly. I'm always scraping up toast. Somehow my kids have toast like all the time. It's like constant all day long. There's crumbs everywhere. But the crumb scraper, he should get paid the most. He makes sure that your water glass is never empty and all your crumbs are always scraped up. It makes me want to keep my linen tablecloth really nice, you know. He's poised. He's ready. You don't have to ask for him. You don't have to wave at the crumb scraper. You don't have to give him, like, the, the crumb signal, like, thumbs up or whatever. He just comes. He's poised. He's ready. Who emulates this for us or maybe more for me? Well, the person I've lived with the longest. My wife demonstrates this for me. I hope you can say that about your spouse. Nobody knows me better than her. She knows my faults. She knows how mean I can be. She knows how selfish I can be. She's seen me be lazy. She's seen me be incredibly unholy. And yet she has forgiven me over and over and over again. Those vows that we made together, she has kept them. She is poised to forgive me, and she doesn't do it because she has to. She does it because she delights in doing so. Are you postured toward, are you poised toward forgiving each other? Maybe another way of saying this, and you might want to jot this down, are you eager to forgive? If Jesus saw joy in the work of redemption, which is amazing, it doesn't even make sense. How, how could someone view the redemptive work that would cause so much pain and loss as joy. He was eager to forgive. Are you? Will you pursue that kind of life? I close with this quote from Jonathan Edwards. Edwards said, the beautiful life is the life of love, of others directed service and affection. With love, even circumstantial hell can be transformed into a taste of heaven. Who do we want to be as a people? If we look a whole lot like the world around us, if we are unmerciful, if we are unkind, if we are arrogant, if we are harsh, if we are impatient, if we hold records of wrongs against people, we just look like the world around us. But if these virtues are produced in us by the Spirit, and He must do it, if these virtues are produced in us by the Spirit, and this becomes a beautiful place, a beautiful family that we want to belong to, that others will as well. I'll close with these words from 1 Corinthians 13. Maybe you had these read when you were at the altar with your spouse. 
Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. As those chosen, holy, and beloved, let us, by the Spirit, demonstrate these virtues to each other and to a needy watching world. Let's pray.